Okay, so we're going to be starting chapter six today. And uh, this is one of my favorite chapters. I got to know it very well when I lived in Italy because I would get angry every day and in the evening go to my room and read chapter six and try and calm down. And then the next morning go and get angry all over again. And, you know, this was a repeated cycle. Um, Yeah, I thought I didn't have a problem with anger before I went there, and then I learned I actually did have a problem with anger. Uh, But at first I was sure it actually wasn't my problem with anger. It was that I was working with obnoxious people. And my anger was their fault. Yeah. And they should have known better and been, been more polite and more respectful and kinder. Yeah. They should be different than they are. They should not be macho Italian men. Yeah. And I had every right to demand that. You don't believe me. <laughs> we all have that, that a similar story, don't we? About how somebody mistreated us and harmed us and made us angry. They made me angry. Yeah. So it's their doing. They made me angry because I was just, you know, a cherub. (laughs) So sweet. Yeah. And then can you imagine what these people did to have to make this very sweet, considerate, cherub-like nun angry? I mean, they must have really done something horrible. which means that they're horrible people, which means that I have every right to hate them as long as I live. And somehow hating them is going to make me feel good. Has has hating anybody ever made you feel good? Some of you aren't sure. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, think about it. Yeah, when we hate somebody, we are superior. We are right. They are wrong. They are inferior. Yeah, and we stay stuck in that hatred and in that anger. Feeling I'm right, they're wrong. Yeah. And they've got to change. It's as simple as that. That was another thing my mother used to say. It's as simple as that. (laughs) Yeah, did your mother say that? Yeah, they've, somebody is a bad person. It's as simple as that. They've got to change. That's simple, isn't it? 
<laughs> that they change. Yeah, me? No, I don't have to change. Yeah, because I can take pride in my victimhood. I've I've used this. I mean, my story of, of being in Italy. Everywhere I go, I tell it. I, I've gotten a lot of mileage out of this story. <laughs> You know, these guys, they didn't know how much they were giving me when they were mistreating me. They gave me an identity. They gave me a story to tell in teachings. Yeah, otherwise I'd just sit here and I have nothing to say. (laughs) Okay. Well, we better do our... uh, our uh, visualization prayers, otherwise I'm going to go on and tell you more about what they did to me and how much I'm right and they're wrong and how they're bad people. Oh, horrible. Okay. (laughs) So you visualize... All the holy beings in front, yourselves surrounded by sentient beings. And those people that you just can't stand are right in front of you. So to see the Buddha, you have to see them too. And they're facing the Buddha. And we're going to lead them and lead all sentient beings, and lead ourselves in taking refuge and generating bodhicitta. Let's cultivate our motivation. Begin by thinking of someone you cannot stand, who you really are mad at and hate and don't want to have anything to do with. And as you think of that person or persons, uh, Feel the anger, the resentment, the the hatred that you have towards them. What does that emotion feel like? Then ask yourself, is that state of being so angry, is that mind, uh, is it easy for that mind to practice the path? 
It's easy for that mind to think about emptiness or to cultivate compassion. And that mind of anger and resentment and hatred abide together with compassion and feelings of connection and empathy. When you even think of what it feels like to feel connection and compassion and empathy, is that feeling in your heart-mind anything like the feeling of anger, resentment, and hatred? And imagine hearing about all the Buddha's wonderful qualities, impartial love and compassion, wisdom, acceptance, and so on. And yet, you hear about those qualities, but your mind stays completely stuck in that, the anger. Then what? And what would it feel like to release the anger, the grudge holding? What would the feeling tone in your mind be like then? And so release that tightness in your heart and 
Try and get a feeling of bodhicitta and make that the direction you're going in. So when, when you think about the person or people or group or whatever that you can't stand, you have an image in your mind. Does that image change when you think about them at different times or does it remain pretty consistent? Pretty consistent, isn't it? Yeah. So we've assigned them a a caricature, a personality, and that's all they are, that's all they ever will be. And I have no choice about how to uh, feel in response to their actions. Because they harm me, they're going to harm me, They're harmful, horrible people. And anybody in their right mind would hate them. Yeah, and want to either beat them up or get away from them. Yeah, and so every time we think of that person, we call up in our own mind that those same emotions. Yeah. So we're hooked, aren't we? We are hooked by that person. Actually, not even by that person. That person doesn't have anything to do with it. We are hooked by our caricature of the person. Yeah. That controls us. And even if we meet the person who's somebody who's not fixed, but always changing as an impermanent, every single thing they say or do is bad, harmful, disgusting. Yeah? Because they would never do anything other than that. (laughs) Right? So how we feel is completely justified. It's accurate in response to the horribleness of this person who is not a conditioned phenomena, who is not impermanent, who is not empty in true existence, but is permanent, truly existent, unconditioned, 
cannot be changed or rehabilitated. And so because they're like that, our feeling in response to them is going to be exactly like that too. There's no way I can feel anything different. Because if I did, then I might be saying that I'm an awful person and what they did to me was really okay. But I can't say that. So there's two choices. Yeah, Either I'm awful and what they did to me was okay, or I'm a cherub and they're evil and what they did to me was not okay. Yeah, Two choices. Whole universe, two choices. Yeah. And we can't say that I had anything to do with it. Yeah. Because if I said... I had something to do with it. That would mean I caused it. That would mean I'm awful. Even if my part of it was just being there at that time, I didn't even say or do anything. Are you getting what I'm saying? You know, even you're, you're just in the wrong time at the wrong, wrong place at the wrong time, and you get harmed. But we say, oh, there must be something wrong with me, or I must have done something wrong to be at that place. Even though we had no motivation to be there, and it was just circumstance. Okay, so do you see what our mind does? How our mind is very hooked on blame attributing fault. Nothing can be a situation with many diverse causes and conditions. Some are neutral, some are good, some are bad. It can't be like that. Yeah, If something harmful happened, one person bears responsibility. Yeah, We say, oh, well, it is a dependent arising. They, only them, they did it all. Okay. Is that the correct understanding of dependent arising? Yeah. So it's either them or it's me, and it's not going to be me. So it's going to be them. Yeah. And then however long we live, we just have that same feeling of repugnancy everything, every time we think of them. Even after they die and they no longer exist, we still hate them, even though we're hating something that someone who isn't even alive. Actually, the person we hated when they were alive wasn't alive either. It was completely what our mind was creating them to be. Okay. So this lies behind our prison system, you know, 
people are can be rehabilitated. Yeah, they're always bad and wrong. And, uh, you know, in our personal relationships, we may not have a physical prison that we lock people up in, but inside our own mind, we're the judge, we're the jury, we're the prosecutor. That person has no defense uh, attorney. <laughs> yeah. So we prosecute them. We judge them as guilty. Yeah. We condemn them to be to the worst possible thing in the world, our hatred. That's how we're going to get even, by hating them. That's going to cause them suffering. Of course, they've gone on with their life. They're doing whatever they're doing. They're not thinking of us all the time. But we, you know, stay stuck, totally, 100% stuck. Yeah? Okay. So, are there some disadvantages to holding grudges and being angry? Yeah. Are the disadvantages bad enough that you want to give up your grudge holding? Really? I don't know. Yeah, because we're afraid if we give it up, it means that, you know, we're not punishing them sufficiently. Yeah. Our hatred is punishment. Okay. They deserve to be punished, even though they aren't even thinking about how much we hate them. (laughs) They're thinking about other things in life. Yeah. I'm holding on to that. Mm-hmm. And the only way I can ever release it is if they admit what they did to me and apologize for it. And they can't just say, oh, I'm sorry you were hurt. Because they're not accepting any responsibility. They're blaming me for being hurt. Yeah, you hear all these apologies in the news. Oh, I apologize. You know, someone uses some kind of racist language. Oh, I'm very sorry if anybody was offended. Are they apologizing for what they said? No. They're saying, I hope you don't hate me too much. So if they apologize, it can't be like that. It's got to be a sincere, heartfelt opening up that they were 100% at fault and that they are suffering considerably when they think of how much suffering they caused me. So that day and night, 
They are miserable because of their remorse. Then, maybe I will accept their apology. Because I am so benevolent and compassionate to these stinking, dirty, disgusting people who had the nerve to harm me. Okay, now what did Shanti Deva say about bodhicitta and compassion? I feel so inspired by that. I'm one of those very nice, compassionate people. Want to become a bodhisattva so badly. Have compassion for everybody. Right? So, when I finally left Italy, okay, when I, I wrote to Lama, because uh, he had sent me there, so I had to request to leave. And uh, I felt justified in requesting, after all, uh, one of the people, you know, one of them, Sam, there were many of them, but Sam told me, that I was the worst thing that ever happened to that Dharma center and that I should be kicked out immediately because I was so harmful. So when I wrote to Lama and asked him if I could leave, I felt justified. Yeah, Sam wanted me gone too. I wrote to Lama, Lama, can I leave Italy? These people are making me create so much negative karma. Yeah. They are, they are making me create negative karma. So they are sending me to the hell realm. I don't want to create any negative karma. So I just, you know, I got to get away from them. Lama, please. And Lama wrote back and said, yeah, we'll discuss it when I'm there, dear. I'll be there in six months or three months or however long it was. Can I make it until then? So I somehow managed to make it until then. Lama said I could leave. I won't tell you what happened, uh, where I went, but from there. But um, then I I wound up going back to Kathmandu, to Kapan, where I knew I was going to be happy. That was my Dharma home, and my teachers, my Dharma friends were there. And yes, Sam and all those other people had the same teachers, but they weren't going to be there at that time. So I got back to Copan, and I went to see Lama Sopa. And uh, at that time, I don't know what it looks like now, because they've rebuilt the, the uh, old gompa. But at that time, there was the prayer hall, and then on top of it, uh, like a flat roof and an open patio. So Rinpoche and I were sitting on the open patio in the, you know, sunshine, looking out on the beautiful Kathmandu Valley, which is now, you know, fully congested. But this was back in, what year was it? 80, 1980 maybe? 
So we're talking, and and Rimche, uh, you know, Rimche is one of Sam's teachers, and Rimche says to me, "Who is kinder to you, the Buddha or Sam?" Huh? What kind of question is that? Yeah. Sam made me create so much negative karma that now I have to do more and more prostrations to purify. Yeah. And the Buddha teaches me the Dharma and, you know, helps me along the path. So Buddha is clearly kinder to me than Sam. Yeah. Buddha's my object of refuge. Sam was not. So, you know, I wanted to show Rinpoche what a good Dharma student I was and how much I appreciated the Buddha. So I said, Buddha is kinder to me than some sentient being. And Rinpoche looked at me like, still haven't gotten it, kid, have you? And then he went on to explain to me how Sam was infinitely kinder to me than the Buddha. And I'm going, how can somebody be kinder to me than the Buddha? Impossible. You know? So why is, is Sam kinder to me than the enlightened one? Because if I want to become a Buddha, this is what Rinpoche told me, if I want to become a Buddha, I have to practice the perfection of fortitude. And you can't practice the perfection of fortitude with somebody who is kind to you, like the Buddha. You need an enemy in order to practice the perfection of fortitude. Without an enemy, you cannot complete that perfection. Without completing that perfection, you cannot become an enlightened Buddha. So for that reason, Sam is kinder to me than the Buddha, because Sam provides the condition for me to be able to practice fortitude, which is a bodhisattva practice, and pushes me on the way to Buddhahood. That was not exactly the answer I wanted to hear. Yeah. I wanted Rinpoche to say, you're really, you know, such a good practitioner. You stayed in Italy all that time dealing with Sam, who was a really difficult person, and dealing with Peter, who I was also one of my students, also extremely difficult. And dealing with these other uh, Machu Italian monks, and you survived it all, and you served the Dharma Center well, and you bore the suffering well. That's what I wanted to hear. You know, a, a little bit of poor, you know, poor you. You endured all of that for the benefit of the Dharma. That's what I wanted to hear. That's not what my teacher said. He said, Sam is kinder than the Buddha.
I could tell you some other things, Rinpoche said, that would send you through the ceiling. Because I made the mistake of saying them once in, in a Dharma talk, and the people in that talk went directly through the ceiling. So I will not say that again in a public place. Just quoting my teacher, but the people cannot stand it. Yeah? Because Dharma is the opposite of our worldly way. And I have so many proofs of what Sam and Peter did. You want to hear some more? Yeah, of course you want to do. Yeah, of the horrible things, what they did to me. Yeah, and and the, not and the whole cohort, you know. I was sent there by Lama to be the gegu of the Italian monks. Gegu is the disciplinarian. Can you imagine Machu Italian monks having a woman be their disciplinarian? <laughs> anyway, let's see what Shanti Deva says. I'll save some of those stories for later when you're really bored. <laughs> Wake you up with my persecution stories. Okay, so here's what Shanti Deva says. First verse. Whatever wholesome deeds, such as venerating the Buddha, practicing generosity, that have been amassed over a thousand eons, will all be destroyed in one moment of anger. Wait a minute, that's not fair. That's not fair, is it? Yeah? You're ang- you're, you create so much karma over a thousand eons, and then one moment of anger wipes it out? That is not fair. Okay, okay. Where's the Lord of Karma? I'm going to file a complaint. Yeah. Actually, one moment doesn't mean this. It means however long it takes for that, whatever happens to occur. Yeah, you're on my side, right? Yeah. Oh, good, okay, yes? The FPMT translation doesn't say one moment. It just says, we'll be destroyed by anger. So I don't know if that was added by bachelor or missed by... Or subtracted by people. I don't know. Anybody have another translation at hand? It says one moment. Okay. So why would, you know, one moment, however long that moment was, that incident was, destroy so much anger? Why would, for even forget the math about it, why would anger destroy virtue? Yeah. Especially, I mean, isn't righteous anger good? Isn't righteous anger virtuous? Somebody is being unfair, somebody is being unjust, you get angry, you step in, you're going to 
you know, get that person who's tormenting somebody else. You're going to slug them and, you know, like Popeye, drink your, your, your spinach, go in there, slug the guy, throw him out the window. Okay. Isn't that good? You're righteously angry. So why, why is anger destroying virtue? Yeah, aren't you on the side of goodness? Yeah? No, you're just sitting there. So you must agree with me. Oh, somebody's disagreeing. There's so many reasons. One is that anger is harmful. Another is when your mind is in that place, there's no room for any compassion. Anger never uh, uh, helps somebody change. It only uh, makes them feel bad and, you know, they feel harmed. So it's not an effective method on any level. It's not effective, but it's still virtuous. No, it's not virtuous. It's harmful. Why? I mean, the people in... um, in World War II, who vanquished the, the Nazis, wasn't that all virtuous? Yeah, wasn't. Oh, motivation. Well, they were motivated by standing up for all glory and freedom. That's what all the ads for the military say anyway. You're so virtuous going out there. And all the people who advocate for for people in society having guns so they can shoot down the bad guys whenever they happen to be in that situation. Isn't that virtuous? You look sick to your stomach, Venerable Jigme. <laughs> I'm not convincing you. Oh, I'm sure there's people in this world that agree with me, though. Yeah, a lot of people. I bet you more who agree with that than disagree. Okay. When you feel at the beginning, you know, when I asked you to, like, really think of somebody that you couldn't stand and get a feeling for that disgust or wrath or, you know, whatever kind of of negative feeling you felt towards them. You can see that feeling in your heart and the feeling of kindness, they just don't go together, do they? Yeah? They can't be in your mind at the same time. So if one is there, it's harming the other one. Yeah. So we may practice kindness and then we get angry. And you can feel it sometimes. If you watch your mind when you get angry, you can, you can feel the the virtues start to get burned. Yeah. 
because the mind's flipped. It's gone in the total other direction. So I find just remembering that very effective when I get angry because no matter how justified I feel in my anger, is it worth getting angry, the pleasure, quote, quote, pleasure of getting angry, the feeling of being right? Yeah. Is that worth vanquishing eons of merit? That pleasure that I get from being right and pointing out these awful people did. Yeah, is is that? Yeah, having that feeling, is that worth burning a lot of merit? No, not at all. Not at all. Because it takes a lot of energy to, to create merit, doesn't, doesn't it? It doesn't create any energy to, you know, we don't have to really work ourselves up and psych ourselves out to create anger, do we? You know, if we're going to really focus on doing something virtuous and have a, a sincere motivation, we need to really sit there and go through all the reasons and generate that feeling Take some energy. Getting angry? Like that. Yeah? The reasons for our anger are in the mind like that. Aren't they? Yeah? There is no transgression like hatred. And this one says no fortitude like patience. What do other ones say? What? Prosperity. Prosperity. Austerity. Austerity. That would make much more sense. Yeah. Do you know what the Tibetan word is? Huh? Ascetic practice. Okay. Okay, yeah, austerity. Because they do say that austerity, um, that, that practicing fortitude, is, it's an austerity. You know, you're, you're, uh, uh, yeah, you're refraining from indulging in the pleasure of hating somebody. The pleasure of hating somebody. Yeah, that's, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? And yet, that feeling of my anger, my hatred is just. It is fair. They deserve it. It's so strong that it's hard to refrain from that. Yeah? Because we have so many reasons to support it. And, you know, how many people hate that person as much as we do? Well, there's some caricatures in society that maybe there's, you know, many people feel like that. But usually in our personal lives, how many other people hate that person as much as we do? Not so many. 
they probably have many more friends than they do enemies. Yet, my hatred is justified. So it's really uh, an austerity, an ascetic practice. Yeah, to refrain, to hold the mind back from that. Thus I should strive in various ways to meditate on fortitude. Okay, so I want to explain why I'm changing the translation here. Patience. In English, the word patience often has the connotation of waiting for somebody. Yeah, be patient. So just, you know, calm down and wait for something to happen. Yeah. But uh, that's not what this perfection is about. This perfection is about having inner strength. It's not about sitting there and being patient and waiting for somebody else to figure out that something else, you know. It's about us having inner strength so that we can endure difficult situations. So when we talk about three kinds of of fortitude, one is the fortitude to bear suffering. Yeah, one is the fortitude, that means like physical suffering. Uh, One is the fortitude of, of bearing harmful actions by other people. And one is the fortitude of practicing the Dharma. Okay. When I hear, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word patience, I don't get that sense of inner strength. I get the sense of sitting there and waiting. Yeah. And this, this is not that. This is something active. Okay. And I think this sense of fortitude or inner strength, the ability to bear difficulties, uh, that gives us a lot of self-confidence. Yeah? Because when you see the areas where we lack self-confidence, it's the areas where we feel weak, like the situation is too much for us. Whereas with fortitude, we can bear difficulty, then we aren't uh, cow, what is cowtowed? Cow, coward? What? Cowtowed by any, any situation. You know, we can face things, whatever they happen, no matter how difficult they are. And that's a really important tra- trait, you know, just to be happy in this life let alone, you know, to become a bodhisattva. Yeah. I mean, can you can you imagine a bodhisattva going, oh, but, you know, I don't feel like I can handle that situation. It's just too overpowering for me. Yeah. I mean, do you think a bodhisattva is going to face illness like that? Oh, I have an illness. I'm just going to... I'm just going to dissolve in tears. I I can't handle this situation. Yeah. 
or I can't handle this situation, so I'm going to blow it all up before it even starts. That's not bodhisattva action, is it? Yeah? Bodhisattvas have a tremendous sense of self-confidence that's not arrogance. You know, where does their... I mean, what is self-confidence? To me, self-confidence is the feeling inside that you can handle situations in some kind of virtuous, practical way without those situations overpowering you. So there's some uh, situations where we have confidence. Yeah. There's some situations where we don't have much confidence. Yeah, because we don't know what to do. If I'm driving on the highway and have a flat tire, I don't, you know, okay, uh, maybe I can find the jack, but I don't really know how it works. I know how to wave somebody down and ask for help. Yeah, but it would, I'd have a lot more confidence if I knew exactly what to do in this situation. Okay, so fortitude is what gives us this kind of confidence. You know, specifically here, it's the confidence to know that we can handle uh, suffering situations, whatever Dharma practice brings up in our mind, and criticism and insult. Okay. My mind will not experience peace if it fosters painful thoughts of hatred, I shall find no joy or happiness. Unable to sleep, I shall feel unsettled. Have you ever not been able to sleep because you were mad at somebody? Because something happened that you didn't like, and you lay down go to sleep, and you couldn't fall asleep. Because inside it was, they did this, and then they did that, and I have to do this, and this. I can't stand what they did, and I've got to stop it right away. And da, da, da. the mind is spinning. Yeah, when the mind is spinning, we can't sleep. Okay. One time, I saw this interview. I wish we could find it. I wonder if somebody ever posted it on the web. It was from a long time ago. And uh, some journalist, maybe from the L.A. Times, was was interviewing His Holiness and uh, said, asked him, how come you're not angry about the situation in Tibet? Yeah, there's been genocide, there's been environmental destruction, You've become, been a refugee for so many years now. How come you're not angry? And she was giving His Holiness the mic to be able to go off on how horrible what the Chinese communists have done. Okay? But His Holiness didn't. Yeah. His Holiness looked at her and said, if I were angry, I wouldn't be able to sleep very well at night. And I wouldn't enjoy my food. And my life would be quite miserable. 
So why should I be angry? And this journalist is like, what is this guy saying? You know? It would be as if she had handed the microphone to Yasser Arafat. And what would he have said? Well, the Israelis, this, and the Balfour Declaration, and And His Holiness said, well, you know, I couldn't even sleep or enjoy my food. What's the use of being angry? She couldn't believe somebody who would say that. Yeah. But he really meant it. Yeah, he really meant it. And I heard him repeatedly in my all my years in, in Dharamsala at his public teachings, repeatedly saying to the Tibetans, do not be mad at the Chinese communists. Do not hate those people. Yeah? And he's saying that to... Uh, I mean, this was years ago, so they, you know, now it's the second generation in exile. He was talking to the people who had to escape from Tibet with, you know, going over the mountains in the middle of the night with hardly anything, and then coming to India and, you know, falling ill, having to do road work, and and so on. And he's telling them not to hate the Chinese communists who created this situation for them having to flee their homeland. And he said that repeatedly. You don't hear other world leaders say that, do you? Yeah. Yeah, so he really understood this verse. I shall find no joy or happiness. Unable to sleep, I shall feel unsettled. Even worse than unsettled, agitated. Yeah. A master who has hatred is in danger of being killed, even by those who, for their wealth and happiness, depend upon the master's kindness. Okay, so Shantideva is speaking from an ancient Indian perspective, you know, where they there was definite class differences. There was the caste system, and the uh, the untouchables were the lowest caste, and that was it. Okay, so the masters, those in the higher caste, yeah. So those people who hate the people who work for them, the serfs or slaves or untouchables who work for them, those people who work for them are dependent on the master to get their income and stay alive. Yeah, In, in the U.S., if you were a slave... You depended on the master to have food. If you were a sharecropper, you depended upon the landowner to, you know, to have food. Okay. But what Sushantideva is saying is even though those people are under the master and depend on the master, if the master is, hates them and is unkind towards them, 
those people are going to rise up and harm them. Is you know the master is in danger to be killed. So even though those people depend on him for their livelihood, they're going to be so upset by his hatred and ill treatment that he's in, his life is in danger. Okay, yeah, you got it. Okay, so he's essentially saying, you know, you may think you're a big shot, but be careful, check up. Yeah, don't treat people. Uh, don't be angry and treat people poorly. Okay, by it, friends and relatives are disheartened. Though drawn by my generosity, they will not trust me. In brief, there is nobody who lives happily with anger. Okay, so by my anger, friends and relatives are disheartened. Disheartened seems to me too mild of a word, you know. Yeah, if I if I'm angry, and I I'm totally inconsiderate and just dumping my anger out on other people, they're going to be more than disheartened. Yeah, they're going to be hurt. They're going to be enraged. Okay. So you think about it. You know, who do we dump our anger out on more? Strangers or our family and friends? Especially our family. Who do we dump on more? Family, isn't it? The the people we, we are closest to, the people we love the most, are the ones that we dump our anger on the most. Yeah. We would never say to a stranger what we say to dear ones. You know, okay, you may give a fin- you know, some a stranger the finger or swear at them. But that that's it. Yeah. With the people we know, we know their sensitive points. And when we're mad, we you know, we know how to push their buttons and make them miserable. Yeah. Even though when they get upset, we look at them and say, well, why are you upset? I didn't say anything bad. Yeah. Because we insulted them in a very sweet voice, knowing what they're sensitive about. Okay, but what the, this line here is getting at is if we are an argumentative person, who's going to like to be around us? Yeah? If we're always arguing, picking faults, complaining, blaming other people, getting mad at them for the smallest things they do, are other people going to want to be around us? Or do you want to be around somebody like that? No. So other people won't want to be around us either. 
This is exactly what our parents told us when we were little kids, isn't it? Yeah. Be nice to your playmates, otherwise they don't they won't want to play with you. Didn't your parents teach you that? But he threw sand at me. Okay. So by it, friends and relatives are disheartened. Through though drawn by my generosity, they will not trust me. Okay, so I may practice generosity, the first of the uh, six perfections. And generosity always wins people over, you know, for giving, being, have a good motivation. Yeah. But uh, so people may be drawn by our generosity, but if we turn around and we're mean and we're angry, they're not, still not going to trust us. Okay, and this is what is so unsettling in some families, you know, kind of a parent or somebody in the family can be extremely kind and then the next day be very mean. So you're not sure from day to day who you are dealing with, a kind person or a mean person. And as a result, we don't really trust Yeah, we can't relax around that person because we're not sure if they're going to smile or lash out. Yeah, So just as we can't trust somebody like that, if we act like that, then other people are not going to trust us. No matter how uh, how generous we are, how kind we are in our generosity, If we turn around and we just lay into people with anger, they're they're not going to trust us. Okay. So when you know, really reflecting on on these verses and uh, thinking about the effects of our anger on other people, and if we can't see the effect of our anger on them. Try imagining somebody acting in an angry way towards us and see how we feel and how we respond. You know, and then it becomes very clear. Uh, People are not going to want to be around us. In brief, there is nobody who lives happily with anger. So we may stomp on other people, insult other people, humiliate other people, make them so afraid that they even go against their own values. Yeah. But inside our heart, we're not going to be happy. Because even though we may make people so afraid that they do what we want them to do, they don't like us. Yeah. They don't respect us. We don't respect people we're afraid of. Some people really confuse respect and fear. I find this a lot uh, with the inmates, the incarcerated people I work with. Yeah. They think respect, you know, if if people don't kind of fear you, they're not going to respect you. 
Okay. So you've got to make people afraid by being very, you know, a big brute. Look, I mean, look at the political climate in this country. Yeah. The more you can spill your anger out on other people and blame them and insult them and humiliate them, yeah, the more they just say, oh, yes, we love you. Yeah, we're going to do whatever you say. This is what's happening in the country right now, you know. And it's so damaging, not only for the whole country, but also for those individuals who are lying out of fear, lying out of attachment to their own uh, status and reputation and being afraid of the criticism of somebody else. Yeah? And so it looks like the person who's doing the criticizing has a lot of power. Yeah? Actually, that person from their own side doesn't have power. Yeah? The people give somebody the power. Aryadeva, in the 400, I think it's in the fourth chapter, he goes really into it, how people have power, not from their own side, but because other people give it to them. So if you can terrify people, they will give you their power. Then you feel powerful but actually, you have no power. You know? And as soon as those people get smart and say, forget it, I'm not playing this, what a venerable uh, Sultan call it, dog and pony show. I'm not going along with this dog and pony show anymore. Yeah, then where are you? You're in the dog and pony poo. Okay, so nobody, there's nobody who lives happily with anger. Let's just stop here for a minute and there's questions or comments. Because many people do not agree that there's disadvantages to anger. Yeah? So um, my question was back on the first paragraph, um, just around a moment of anger, destroying an eon of virtue. Is that like a complete karma of hatred or a moment of irritation? Could you dive into that a little bit more? <laughs> um, Deva gets into this whole mathematical thing of... Uh, you know, how much anger to who destroys how much merit. I'm not an expert in that, okay? Um, I mean, definitely very strong anger, hatred is going to destroy more than a fleeting moment of being annoyed. Yeah, definitely. And definitely holding the anger for a longer period of time is going to be more destructive than holding it for a short period of time. Okay. So how many eons of anger are destroyed 
if you have anger, uh, number eight out of ten for ten minutes, I can't tell you. Okay, but we do know what I what I just said. Yeah. And then the follow-up question kind of further along was you were talking about, you know, bodhisattvas, you know, not um, getting angry, right. And, and having patience uh, when they're at, when they, you know, there are things that they need to do. And I guess like for me, the, the challenges is I'm trying to build up my patience and build up my generosity and my capacity and when I'm at the kind of edge, that, that growing edge, right? Yeah. Like how to work with that and what advice you have around, around that, right? Where um, if you find yourself really ex extending, you know, to beyond a little bit where you can. And so you're getting that frustration frequently as a result because mm -hmm. you've taken on a lot of things. How do you work with that? Okay. So you find that what you know intellectually about the disadvantages of hatred and anger uh, isn't enough to make you stop being angry in certain situations that you that your anger gets the best of you. <laughs> um, it's more like I've noticed that my frustration rises when I'm on that when I've like overextended myself, uh -huh. and it rises more frequently, and. I feel like I can still like manage it um, or like not fully indulge it, but that it's there a lot more and it's harder. Yeah. What you want to do, and we'll, we'll get into this later, is that anger, um, the fuel for anger is an unhappy mind. Okay. So if, you know, you're stressed because you've taken on too much, if you're tired, you need to rest and have some space. If you're hungry, many people get very angry when they're hungry. So you have to see what kind of situations make us uh, more unhappy and receptive to getting angry. And here I'm talking not about situations with other people, you know, because if we're going into a situation with another person, but we're tired and we're hungry and we've been working for the whole day and all you want to do is rest, then it's going to be much easier to get irritated and upset. Yeah. So if, if you know that, that those kind of things, physical things are, are triggers, then to make sure, you know, that, that you eat, you know, have a consistent time of eating, that you get enough rest, that when things are too much, you say, I need, uh, you know, I need to take some time. You know, and when your mind says, no, but this is so important, I've got to do it, otherwise the whole world is going to fall apart, assure yourself that actually the world will not fall apart. You know, you can take some time to rest. And then go into the situation in a more refreshed way. And then, sorry, one last follow-up yeah. to that. The other reaction I find myself having is wanting to not get into those situations ever again, right? There's the like, that was overwhelming. Now I want my life to be really easy. 
Right. And so do you have advice around just like counteracting that kind of fear-based self-centered mind of uh -huh. withdrawal? Like that's, that's a horrible situation. I don't want to be in that again. It's more like I took on too much for too long and now I want my life to be easier. Uh -huh. Right. Like yeah. it's a, it's a kind of like trying to shift life, but it, I notice within myself that is, there are elements of it that are self-centered and mm -hmm. fear-based mm -hmm. that contradict my bodhisattva vows. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Then, um, you got to see, you know, try and work with that fear and that self-centeredness in your, in your meditation. You may not be able to work with it in the actual situation, but at least in your meditation, Maybe try and imagine doing the taking and giving or try and imagine kind of overcoming that fear or that dislike and, uh, you know, imagine having some kind of equanimity and then just being able to carry that out. And so at least in your mind, you're working with those blocks that come up and then take a break, you know, because if, you know, when our mind isn't strong enough, we can imagine that, but then we, we, if we put ourselves in the situation, yeah, we're, we're gonna get upset. Yeah. Mm hmm. And sometimes we can't avoid the situation. Yeah. And then you just have to, you know, work with your mind as best as you can before you go into it. And after you get upset, then you come back and you read chapter six and you calm yourself down. <laughs> yeah? The mind that wants to harm others is the direct opposite to bodhicitta. Anger acts as an antidote to virtue. Yep. Or not, maybe not antidote, but a counterforce. You know, anger destroys virtue. It's exactly what, what Shantideva is saying. Yeah. Fortitude seems to have a connotation of struggle, gritting your teeth and bearing it, suffering in silence. Patience works better for this person. Oh, okay. If patience as a word works better for you, use patience. Yeah. The word isn't important. It's that you understand what the meaning is. Uh-huh. How could we conciliate the bodhisattva vows of avoiding a bad reputation and patience when somebody works hard to harm us through slander? Okay. You, if somebody works hard to harm us through slander, there's, um, you have to check what's going on in your mind. If your mind's getting hurt, if you're getting angry, what I do is I say, it's very good that they're ruining my reputation. I'm too arrogant anyway. They're ruining my reputation. That's actually good for me. Okay? Because first thing I know, I have to calm my anger and my, and my arrogance and my attachment to reputation. Okay? Then, yeah, if I'm trying to, you know, uh, if I'm trying to be a benefit to, to those people who are now against me, yeah, 
uh, you need a good reputation, yeah, but you need a good reputation not because you're attached to your reputation. Yeah, you need people to think well of you so that the door is open to be able to benefit them. So in that case, if they're criticizing, uh, you know, if we need to apologize, we apologize. If they're criticizing because they have wrong information, then we need to go to them and give them the correct information. Yeah. If uh, they need time to settle down, then we need to give them that space to settle down before talking to them. Okay. But we do that not out of attachment to our reputation, but because we know we need to keep a good relationship with them because we sincerely want to benefit them and we have some ability to benefit them. Okay? So we don't use that bodhisattva practice as an excuse to be attached to our reputation and slander somebody else back by saying, that person's slandering me, but they don't know what they're talking about. They're such a horrible person anyway, because I really am trustworthy. Yeah, that's not going to go too far convincing other people. Anything else? Okay, then we'll stop here. So spend some time thinking about the defects of anger and uh, spend some time reviewing the, you know, the big episodes of anger that you've had in your life and, you know, what, uh, what's going on that, that these situations are, you know, what pattern do we find in those situations, because then, and what are we thinking? What patterns of thought? Because then we'll know, like, what to work on.